Hi, and welcome to our episode of Mum, Will the Planet Die Before I Do? The podcast about parenting in the climate crisis. I'm Katie Glassborough. And I'm Babisa Sharma. And we are thrilled to have you with us today for our chat with an amazing guest, Katie. We loved her, didn't we? Yeah, and she's very different to anyone we've spoken to before, actually. She is um, Emma Must. She's a poet and she is a former full-time climate activist. Her first full-length poetry collection, The Ballad of Yellow Wednesday, is about her involvement in the anti-road protests at Twyford Down near Winchester in the south of England in the early 1990s. Yeah, it was really interesting to chat to Emma because um, she explained to us why she decided to stop being an activist and why she wanted to focus on writing poetry instead. Um, and this is largely to do with her need to want to create something rather than, as she says, constantly trying to stop things being destroyed. Here's our chat with Emma. How would you describe yourself, Emma? Yeah, well, I'm a poet um, and I used to be a, um, a full-time environmental campaigner. The used to is really interesting. Yeah, I'd love to know how, what that bridge, but we'll get to that in a bit. But for those people that don't know, you're, you're pretty well known in the activism space of uh, the climate crisis. And that goes back a while ago to what, 1990s, right, Emma, when you kind of were thrust into the media spotlight. Um, and for those people that don't know, can you just um, explain what that period was all about? Yes, so I was, a, I was a library assistant and I was working in Winchester Library um, in, in my 20s and, the, I used to have to go to work by train every day from Southampton, and I saw the, the end of Twyford Down. They'd started to scrape off the uh, green grass on top of the hill, and there was this great white blank page, and it just upset me so much that I tried to find out whether there was still any, anybody campaigning against the motorway that was uh, going to be built through the hill. Uh, nobody very much was, but I did manage to find people in the end, but I became very actively involved um, at that point in 1992 to try to stop the motorway going through at this hill that I'd known since I was a child, Twyford Down, which was um, in an area of outstanding natural beauty, uh, very close to Winchester. How did that. you find those people? What's well, such a good question. I spent about a week on the phone so I see, I'd just come back down from Leeds. I just finished my English degree in Leeds that summer and I was working in the library. So I'd watched what was going on with, with um, everything on the hill. Um, I rang up the Twyford Down Association. I rang up Friends of the Earth. Um, everyone I could think of, everyone said, there's nobody left still campaigning. The road is going through. Um, and then my my friend at the time, um, a poet in Southampton, Andy Jordan, said, oh, we know there's a camp up on the hill. Um, and I said, well, let's go and visit them. Um, so we did in September 92. And that was the Dongas tribe, as they later became known. And I discovered from there that there was also a local campaign group that was still going on called the Friends of Twyford Down. And just that lit my touch paper and I was involved really from that point on. That's so beautiful. I So I, when I was a very, very young teenager, um, that was one of my first protests, going to Twyford Down, protesting. Um, and 
it's so lovely hearing you, especially when you say you people were saying to you, there's no one left, there's no one left campaigning. Oh, that just, you know, I think being being there as a very young teenager myself and being surrounded by other people who just gave a shit, you know, other people who saw the environmental catastrophe that was road expansion at the time and going through, as you say, this area of outstanding natural beauty, it seems it just burned in me of like this nonsensical thing of why is this, why is this even happening? And you came up against the authorities who were like, well, of course, it's a sensible thing. And you're like, no, it's not. Um, so connecting, as you say, with other people, other kind of communities and other people who also see how crazy the plan was, that was obviously significant for me as a young teen. I wasn't as involved as you were, but how how did that feel for you finding people who who cared about it and who saw the kind of consequences as much as you did? It was so important. It was absolutely vital. It, it made me feel that I wasn't crazy, you know, that I was so relieved. And I think that these people were really trying to do something. So there was the Dongas tribe and they were camped on the hill. They were young people pursuing a, a very different way of life, a very close to nature way of life. And then there was this sort of the remaining campaigners from Winchester who still thought something could be done. People like Chris Gillam and Alan Weeks. And they were, you know, very regular conventional people with normal jobs in Winchester as I was you know um, and we met once a week in the friends meeting house there and Becca Lush who was intrinsic to the campaign as well and I would go up and down um, to these meetings and then um, back up to the camp to take people's supplies and things like that and so it was this mix of people um, these more conventional people and these these um, younger people living on the hill that enabled us to really keep the thing going actually and to do something which and you we did <laughs> you did you really did keep the thing going and it hit the media spotlight in, in quite a crazy way and um your name was used in a headline to describe the tw twyford seven am i right in saying that yeah, that's right. So, so it was, it's hard to explain how frenetic and full on and completely absorbing what went on next was. So the a pivotal moment was, was the 9th of December 1992, when the Department of Transport arrived at dawn um, with its bulldozers and security guards dressed in yellow fluorescent jackets and they came onto the hill and they tried to set up an encampment to begin the main phase of construction work and this was became known as Yellow Wednesday uh, on account of the fluorescent jackets and from that point on there was direct action to try to stop what was going on and then over the next six months uh, this was where I particularly um, became involved with the other local campaigners. We just, we organized mass demonstrations. We were doing direct action, you know, on a very frequent basis. And just to try to do everything we could to stop the bulldozers from gouging the hill out. And what the um, Twyford Seven is about, Babita, is the Department of Transport hired um, a private detective agency, Bray's detective agency, to build up a portfolio 
on each of us, an action file, you know, documenting our activities. And eventually we were all hauled off to the High Court in London uh, and seven of us were sent to prison. And that was in the summer of 93, uh, hence the Twyford Seven. And you were one of those people that yes. were jailed. Yes. For your mm. activism. And how long were you in prison for? So we were, yeah, we were sentenced to one month and we were let out um, after 13 days. So after two weeks. And what, were you, what was the um, crime against you? Yes. So we were, so it's a civil offence. It was for defying a high court injunction. So the injunction was to stop us from walking on Twyford Down. And so we, earlier on, we had a mass injunction break to, so we, we crossed the fence. I think it was, I've got the date here. I think it was the 4th of July. I'm just going to double check. Let me tell you. It's yeah, interesting, isn't it, that you get July, a crime against, July. <laughs> you get a crime against you for walking. You can't yes. walk there, but you can build there. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we just, you know, we, a number of us, so we had the, we, we had these dossiers of photos of our activity mine was delivered on my doorstep I, I lived in a flat in Southampton and uh, in the dead of night one day and um, that summer and um, this jaunty young man with a flat top and a and a white sports car turned up and delivered me a packet of papers an envelope of papers which had my action file in it and said you must come to the high court and be committed to prison give or take Wow. Yeah. So what? Yeah. So we a number of us decided to defy this injunction and we printed these action file numbers on our chests and we crossed the fence. And that was on the 4th of July in 1993. I mean, all of that had such an impact on me personally, Emma, because um, that was the first example in my in my life, um, in my sphere of kind of reality that I saw anyone doing that. So I remember being there just on a, on occasion because I was quite a young teenager, just about fourteen at the time. But to see people like you using their bodies, using you know, defying these injunctions, as you say, where you're told don't walk there, even though it's beautiful, precious land, you know, and actually making that defiant um, stand to physically be there. That was my first um, example in my in my life of anyone doing that. But it must for you have felt kind of so scary because, as you say, you're working as a librarian. This was, you know, everyone was just not we're all just normal people, aren't we doing extraordinary things? But suddenly to be served these papers and to be in jail, how, how did that like feel? Yeah. Being served the papers was really scary. And I think it was the first time at any point I thought, oh god maybe we've bitten off more than we can chew here because I was on my own in my flat when that happened oh it must have been so scary yeah that was really scary I think we knew that going to prison was a risk with breaking the injunction and we discussed that ahead and we that was a very conscious decision so lots of people decided not to break the injunction because they felt that they they simply couldn't do it because of their jobs and their families Mm. Which, oh, which, of course, was the right decision for them. A number of us decided to do it, knowing that it was really risky. We felt that to not break the injunction was to say this is okay for this road to go ahead. And we didn't want to give it our permission. So it was, I think it was the first time that it was, this was the first time this had happened in terms of environmentalism in the UK. And it's the first time that people have been jailed and 
it was a very conscious decision and it's a decision that I would make again if I was in that position yeah but it you know yeah I totally respect any any people's decision to do anything at any point it's just a question of what what you decide to do and we should fast forward to to the outcome Emma Mm. of what happened then because um well success landed for you all yes thanks Babisa so the direct action at Twyford Down and I think the stand that everybody took there really important to say back over years and years and years into the past campaigners had opposed the road through public inquiries through campaigning through the trying to do a petition to the European Commission using every channel they could and then only at the end of the day direct action the result of this was that we didn't stop the road through Twyford Down but the the protests invigorated a national grassroots movement that was already in existence um, with an organization called Alarm UK, the National Alliance Against Road Building. And the direct act, many of the direct action campaigners from Twyford, we set up an organization very loose called Road Alert. And we kind of opted, we um, acted in concert with each other. So the direct action people, the more conventional campaigners, if you like, and by a process of uh, quiet victories and noisy defeats over the course of the next six years, actually, it took six years, we stopped almost all of the roads programme. So the Twyford Down situation, the M3 extension through Twyford Down, was just one of more than 600 road schemes um, proposed by Margaret Thatcher in 1989. Um, she called it the biggest road building programme since the Romans. Um, and this was set to just you know, run riot across the UK, g- going through so many protected sites and green spaces. And by 1998, in a series of um, reversals, if you like, we succeeded in getting rid of all except for 37 road schemes out of I mean, 600. It's remarkable. And actually, Amazing. I think it's hard for us to take, because we now live in an age where activism, protest um, is the norm, I suppose, for many, or not maybe not people actually doing it, but we're aware of it happening around us, or we you know, hear about it more on social media and in TV and stuff. But that wasn't the case, Emma, when you were doing this back in the 90s. And I think, and that's why we wanted to chat to you today, because, you know, oh, I don't know how it sits with you to kind of be one of the founding members of this kind of national movement, global movement, if you like, but you really were and you really did take massive risks, which is why I think for me listening to you, and it's interesting when you say, you know, you were a librarian yeah. and you're just somewhere that was down the road from me. Oh, by the way, for people that don't know Twyford Down and Winchester in the area that Emma's describing, we'll put a link in um, to the podcast so people can have a look at this space that's in sort of south, southern parts of England. Um, but yeah, hearing you and then working out how you now describe or has been written about you that you were former full-time environmentalist um what created the exit why the exit then from campaigning on the front line yeah it's such a good question I never meant to be an environmental campaigner 
um, at all. I, I really wanted to be a poet. <laughs> so I, and I remember at one point drawing a, like a little life plan thing. Because I was trying to get my head around it as well, Babita. And I remember, and it had like a veering off loop which went on for quite a long time, which was into the campaigning. Oh, wow. So I, I, yeah. That actually is like, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people pay good money for readings like that. <laughs> Wonderful. No, I mean, I, this is my, my own sort of trying to come to terms with it. Yeah, such a good question. I, I only got involved in trying to stop the road through Twyfa Down because I didn't feel I had a choice. I, I simply could not bear what was going on. It was so upsetting to me watching what was beginning to be done to where I grew up. I, I mean, I grew up a few miles down the road and that was the landscape of my childhood and I, I couldn't bear it. So that's why I got involved. And then we, I, I needed to see it through, I think, to see if we could, by this time, we had such a head of steam in terms of um, trying to stop the rest of these roads. We, we realized that it was um, not one road through one hill, but you know, a thousand roads through a thousand hills um, to be hyperbolic about it. So by 98, we were all knackered. Um, I was certainly knackered. We'd stopped the roads program, give or take at that point. And what I personally did then was I, I sort of moved on to working as a campaigner on broader development issues um, for a little while. And I think by about 2000, 2001, I, I realized that act, action by individuals can have such a powerful effect and that I had the choice of doing this for the rest of my life, issue to issue to issue to issue, or trying to go back to what it was that I'd originally wanted to do. And I, I, I had this, I had a really very visceral need to stop being an activist, to actively focus on being a poet. And I had a, a visceral need to, to stop trying to stop things being destroyed and to create something, I think. And for me, that pivot point was very definitely around about 2001. And I had to make that active decision in order to be able to go forward with my poetry. And so that was the decision I took. I mean, it's interesting now that's quite um, a kind of trendy thing to you know draw a Venn diagram and what do you love and what are you good at and do you know what I mean there's that kind of thing in environmental activism of trying to kind of work out where where you're best suited to the the fight but the the fact that you were doing that two decades ago already and realizing that sense of burnout that sense that you've you'd had for so long of like I'm I'm doing this because no one else is doing this and I can't not do this um but then realizing that there's there was something different that you could bring through your poetry. What what was it that you? What's different about kind of creating something beautiful through your words? How is that different? Sorry, this is a maybe a bit of a conceptual thing, but how how is that different to you than stopping things being destroyed, but creating something beautiful? That's quite a big kind of leap. Yeah, that's a, a really brilliant question, Katie. As well, I, I think for me, I, I think campaigning is very very creative in order to to work and I think you see that still don't you with 
um, Extinction Rebellion and these extraordinarily creative actions that are going on. So for me, the, the campaigning and the writing sat in the same bit of my brain and I could not do both at once. And you, I simply didn't have the capacity to, to do both things at once. I think that um, that with campaigning requires sort of constant action, constant um, being in concept, being in uh, working with other people collaboratively all of the time, and with a very and being very driven in terms of your goals. And I think that for me, poetry you need it requires time, layering, reflection. You need to let it sit. It requires quite a lot of solitude, I think albeit hugely benefiting from liaising with other writers. And I think that it, it, it doesn't really work if it's end focused, it, it quite often becomes polemical. So, to, so for me, very definitely, when I took the decision to focus on the poetry in 2001, to actively focus on it, it, it wasn't as a campaign tool in any way. So, so it's really important to say that. And I think it was more, a need to make sense of it all and to try to record what went on, to bear witness to what went on, um, to stop forgetfulness, actually, for myself as, mu as much as for anybody else, you know? And I know Philip Larkin calls it, doesn't he, poetry, verbal pickling. And that was what I needed to do. And you know, Katie, it's so weird that, so my books just, come out um, in December, it's 30 years after Yellow Wednesday. But I had no sense when I was writing it that it would sort of be put into this time of new crisis really, with, you know, with the current climate emergency. And so it's kind of got a whole set of other resonances, I think. Well, and if we don't stop that forgetfulness, I love that. Yeah. Like that is the only way that you really ultimately do affect change, isn't it? If you if you take stock of some of these triumphs like that, that road expansion project, as you were describing it, I think now there really is any time there's road expansion as a suggestion. People do think of what happened in, in Twyford and the fact that road expansion was largely disproved as a good idea. But taking that moment to kind of stop that forgetfulness and, and let that percolate. It's That's incredibly so powerful. But also what's interesting, Emma, is that, I mean, I don't know if you believe things happen for a reason or not, but the timing of your book, December 2022, Ballad of Yellow Wednesday, I've got that right, haven't I? Has come at a time where we are discussing the words eco-poetry, eco-criticism, eco-thinking. Um, and these kind of words, and eco-poetry is a thing. I mean, eco-poetry has been around for a long, 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 long time, centuries, centuries old. But the fact that we are using it in the term to talk about the battle against climate change in a real um, rapid way um, and an urgent way, it's all about now. And I, and I don't know how, that, how you feel about that, given the fact, well, surely it's got to be a brilliant platform for your work and your poetry right now, because it's, I don't want to use the word on trend, but it's timely, it's topical, isn't it? But um, that may not have landed, I don't know, who knows, but maybe that would not have had the same audience back in the 90s, had you written the poetry book straight after the um, protests. 
Yeah, it's such a, that's so interesting. I think, yeah, for me, it, it's extraordinary to see the, the shift in green issues in terms of public consciousness now compared to in the 90s. It's so all pervasive now and everybody's thinking and talking about it and that is wonderful absolutely wonderful that wasn't the case in the 90s I mean we were called eco-terrorists you know at one point and um, it was, you know I was a librarian for goodness sake um so yes in terms of eco I just, sorry, I just had this image yeah of you I know as right? a librarian in Winchester being called a terrorist yeah, yeah I mean we I think of... that's a thing right the, what we're talking about is everyday people being moved by something that is destroying the world around them. Well, I was thinking about Ellen yes. pa- Pankhurst this morning for some reason. And, <laughs> you know, like the suffragettes, you know, burning with this with this kind of discrimination against them just because of their gender. Um, and and it, that kind of consci- consciousness raising in them of like, actually, this isn't fair. We shouldn't be discriminated against because we're women. So that kind of that sudden raising in consciousness of like, well, we're going to this is this can't be. And just just ordinary people protesting because something burns inside them, you know. Yeah. But, yes, as uh, you, but as you said, like, sorry, we interrupted your, your what you were going to say there. Emma. But yeah, at the time, that was it was very different, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think that I think it's really important to to talk about waves of activity and waves of action. And, you know, right from the 60s through the 70s, 80s, 90s, the people, people trying to raise awareness in different ways and um, the way in which different people at different time times take over from the people who were doing it before um and it's it's a series of waves really very interesting in terms of the eco poetry eco criticism um babita that you were talking about so that's been around a good while as well and certainly you know in 2007 um uh, neil astley at blood axe produced this brilliant anthology called earth shattering earth shattering eco poems and then you know back before that as well so i think Certainly it's it's coming into its own very, very much now, but it's been around a while. And it's very exciting to see how poets are turning their attention to the to the climate crisis, actually, and to the um, loss in you know, the threat to uh, habitats and species as well. And that's definitely having a moment and, and gathering a bit of a bit of a uh, as a groundswell very much rising up there, which is very so exciting. Yeah. So what you did in the 90s, you're now doing for eco poetry, putting it out there, putting it on the map in a major way, I should add. Um, your book is fantastic, Emma. Thank you oh, for writing it. Same, both with the same objectives. I mean, I guess yeah. is there to disrupt a narrative and poetry and art, in essence, is there to disrupt a narrative as well or to cr- try and create a parallel na- narrative that could be just as good and just as beautiful to kind of expand our minds about what's wrong what's right with society um and I love the idea this... that um that solitary activity that Emma you're talking about Katie is that pen to paper can be so powerful 
yeah can be so powerful I'm, I'm conscious we're running out of time um I'm Katie's the one that often swears on the podcast and I'm the one that's always the timekeeper um and she will Katie you, you swore again in this episode you said you weren't going to oh now sorry. we have now we have to put a parental warning on this again um but um what I wanted to ask you Emma was just briefly if I can how does it sit with you now that you've done what you wanted to do on that little diagram that you penciled out for yourself <laughs> um, and you've gone on that journey? Will you go back to frontline campaigning ever if needs be? Uh, it's a it's a great question. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm very much a poet and I'm just getting into my stride. I, I mean, it's taken me 20 years to learn my craft and to get the first book out there. The next two are pretty much nearly done. Um, oh, wow. So I, yeah, I mean, I cannot wait to, to go forward with those as well. So poetry is very much my focus, but it's so interesting to see that it can potentially be useful, can be potentially useful in the, in the bigger uh, struggle, the bigger struggle against climate change. Um, and so I'm, you know, very much interested to see how that, how that pans out and yeah. I often keep thinking also how, I mean, with protests becoming, well, threatened in the UK and worldwide, as more and more bills and laws are go through Parliament to try and make protest illegal in some ways, I kind of tend to think that some of these other ways of protest, like poetry, like art, will may potentially become even more necessary. I don't know what you think about that. I think that everybody you have to do what it is that you have to do at any one point I think it's important to make your own decisions and your own choices about what you're doing in your own way and do the thing that you really need to do actually uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't really work doing something that you don't want to do and what I very much need to do and will be doing I think for the rest of my life is is writing poetry and yes I know what there's a one campaign and Tom Burke, who's a very a veteran campaigner he's been around for decades. He talks about it as an opera, doesn't he? How the protest against climate change is an opera with us all playing our part in different ways, whether it's the direct activists, the lawmakers, the NGOs, the companies, the people making wonderful um, recordings of sounds under the Arctic and Antarctic, as I woke up to this morning on the Today programme, um, people writing novels with an eco theme, people writing poetry, whatever people are doing in their own way, educators, um, parents, uh, not driving to work, but um, getting the bus, walking, cycling, and um, whatever it is that we're doing, doing it in our own way, um, and hopefully at the end of the day, this will uh, start to have um, a, a bigger impact. We can't let you go. Um, and without, please, 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 um, if you wouldn't mind reading a poem from your new book, we'd love that. And um, perhaps pick out one that resonates. Oh, I'm sure they all resonate a great deal to you, but one that you think um, you'd like to share with us now. Thank you for asking me to do that. If it's all right, I'm going to read um, Toll. That's okay. We hoped you'd read that one. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. Um, you are such a, you're so warm, which is delightful. Um, so Toll, this, this is about 
the night of Saturday, the 22nd of May, 1993. And we were trying to stop the Department of Transport building a Bailey Bridge across the River Itchin at the foot of Twyford Down. They were trying to bring the very large Cat 245 earth movers um, onto the hill. And they called their um, operation that night, um, Operation Market Garden. And we, as protesters, organized a counteraction, which was called Operation Greenfly. And the poem deals with that. Toll. We pulled away the razor wire, pushed the fencing flat, and we were in, then up, then on all 200 of us swarming above the valley on the girders of their Bailey Bridge. All night we banged out rhythms with whatever tools we had to hand. We made the metal sing, brought forth a chime, a knell, a toll, a resounding reverberation, a peal. With measured strokes, we struck the bracing frames as if they'd been cast from bell metal. From beneath our huddled silhouettes, all across the landscape, you could hear the bridge, finding the color of its voice, rejoicing. The toll rings out across the valley still. Emma Must there, ending her chat with us with the poem Toll, taken from her poetry book, The Ballad of Yellow Wednesday. Wow, wow, wow. You know, I'm not a poet, but actually listening to that and taking my own experience of the kind of frenzy of protest, um, I found that really, really moving. And as she said, that desire that she's had to kind of stop fighting things being destroyed and start to kind of create something beautiful out of that experience. That was an amazing conversation. Yeah, it really was. And to, you know, I think we can't forget the fact that Emma was really one of the first high profile protesters in this country mm. um, at a time when it wasn't trendy or topical to talk about climate change. And I think, um, you know, she really did her and her colleagues or fellow activists, however you want to call them, put themselves out there. And the fact that she's kind of decided that that's not the journey she wanted to carry on doing. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of really learned from her the um, pitfalls, I suppose, of activism and also, you know, what it the toll it takes on you as an individual. So that was really um, interesting to hear. But that, also her you know. love of it, though. I mean, her love of it and her wanting, you know, part of the driver is that history doesn't forget, you know, that we kind of hold these hold these moments and that she's kind of, you know, inscribing them in history in, in her own way, which was kind of, yeah, really beautiful, I thought. Yeah, Emma, yeah, really thank special. you. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Um, do stay with us because in this series, of course, we're continuing to look at action-based solutions to the climate crisis. And our next episode, well, the next, um, our guest is really doing just that in a big way. He's the founder of the very successful organic veg box business, Riverford owner Guy Watson saying will be with us to talk about farming in a climate crisis and the truth about organic food. See you then. Mum, will the planet die before I do?
is a Corner Shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough and edited by Nisha Patel.